to our listeners. By visiting wartimeshome.org, you can hear the testimonials from the broadcast, as well as see photos of the gathering and post your comments. Visit wartimeshome.org for more information. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest today is Tony Tacconi, who's the artistic director of Berkeley Rep, the third artistic director of the company. It's been around four decades, and this is the tenth year of Tony Tacconi as artistic director, formerly artistic director over at the Eureka Theater for seven years in San Francisco. Tony Tacconi has directed several plays at Berkeley Rep most recently and still open Wishful Drinking, a one-woman show with Carrie Fisher. Berkeley Rep, celebrating its 40th year, has been since 1980 in its current location. The Thrust Stage, the Rhoda Theater opened, uh, second theater opened in 2001. Berkeley Rep began in, what, 1968 on the, in a storefront. Yep, in the Elmwood District. And uh, moved over in 1980 by Michael Liebert. Why did Liebert begin... Berkeley Rep. I think he was part of a larger social movement at the time, clearly. I mean, as we all know, 1968 was a, a propitious year for many of us, uh, old enough now to remember 1968. He was a, a, a graduate student in the program at Cal. I think he had a vision of an acting ensemble doing plays with sophisticated um, ideas. Like many young theaters at that time, he... Uh, was excited by a whole host, a, a canon of both classical plays and, and plays that were, were being introduced into the modern world by, by younger folks, focusing mainly, though, at that time on, on, on the classical canon. We did a lot of Shaw, Shakespeare, Sheridan, you know, with an acting ensemble that was top-notch. But there was a larger... The, the first picture of Berkeley Rep is a, is a picture of a group of it, of what looks to be hippies surrounding this gigantic sign which says please don't remain silent so clearly you know the larger sort of motivation for all of these guys was to become part of the cultural dialogue to to be able to change the world shape the world take hold of your own life take responsibility make choices and and introduce art in a way that was both creative and exciting for the community and at that point it was a, a repertory company with a revolving number of actors or? absolutely and it stayed that way for a number of years for um close to 15 years it, it was a, a formidable rep in fact the fact many repertory theaters around the country obviously have the name rep attached to it which indicates their original impulse was around that but a whole host of issues came into play most prominently was the economics of trying to sustain a rep company which is really challenging uh, and for that and for lots of other reasons the rep part of it faded away at the time that it opened what was available in the san francisco bay area lots 
There was a lot. Well, of, uh, well, ACT there, was well, around, right? Well, the magic was starting right then, too. The Julian was was a, a young and prominent little theater on um, Petrera Hill. The Eureka had started, I think, right around then, the one-act theater company. There were a bunch of sort of thriving, what we call mid-sized houses, which are no longer there, really. I mean, uh, they've all faded, and that is a huge trauma, really for the cultural scene in, in not only in um in the bay area but nationally because without that opportunity young people do not have enough access to the, you know the larger houses because there isn't a, really a place for them to work out their stuff at what point did berkeley rep begin to move above the other houses in terms of its ability to not only draw people but to fund plays Certainly there was a signal moment in 1981 when the company moved from the storefront um, on College Avenue down into the current home on uh, on Addison Street. The subscribership went in one year from 4,000 to like 9,000. So right there, there was a quantum leap. And, and so all the company's fears about this huge increase in the size of the house and would they be able to fill the house were answered instantaneously. And shockingly, so there was an audience, and I think right at that moment the company moved into a much more sort of serious economic set of resources, which was exciting. Well, at that point, and while you've been artistic director for the past decade, is there more of a sense that you have to cater to the larger audience? Because I know that without putting down ACT, it sometimes it appears that ACT shies away from certain kinds of materials that, insofar as I know, Berkeley Rep does not. You know, Richard, i got to tell you something. The thing I'm probably m most proud of, and I think the thing that we feel most fortunate about, is the, is the fact that our audience has remained open. Uh, what I would say open. Um, we are probably the envy of most theaters in the United States because of the fact that we have a sizable audience, and an audience that's unafraid of newer work, of modern work. And I will say this. Our audience is unafraid to think. Not only are they unafraid to think, but they're unafraid to think in metaphor. They do not have to see themselves reflected on stage every night. And they don't have to, they don't need the, the imprint or the validation that somebody has said this is a great play in order to come in and... Look, listen, watch, hear, feel, think. Well, when you're talking to someone like Harry Perloff, do you two discuss things like, you know, differences in audiences and how that plays out? We discuss differences in aesthetic intention, artistic programming. We do stay in touch because we don't want to sort of step on each other. There, there have been occasions, probably more than half a dozen occasions in the past, you know, 25 years when we've gone after the same play. But it's it's not... It's not been a huge overlap, which I think is is like is a good thing for the you know the both. We were both always fighting over the same plays; it would get pretty ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and we're allies uh, in 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 the deepest sense of the word. And and so I I feel that you know ACT obviously has a mission to revitalize classical literature. Ironically, I think this is a difficult time. The last five years have been a difficult time to run a classical theater company because I would even pinpoint it around nine eleven. Since 9-11, the political climate in this country has radically changed, as, as you well know. But it's our sensibility, our sense that we can no longer be apart from the world, that politics in the largest sense of the word has a vital and 
an urgent place in our lives um, so that those of us who were doing work that spoke to us in a bit, bit more of a direct way or using vocabularies that, that were exploring those ideas both in terms of content and form suddenly moved from a position of being somewhat of an underdog or an outsider to being in the middle of what people actually want and need to hear about. Have you seen a difference in terms of the audiences of Berkeley Rep over the past? We've only years? seen a difference because I think we've had an absolutely wildly aggressive campaign to get younger people in our, in our theater, which has worked. You know, taking over, which you got to see, the last two weeks of the run, I mean, like 33% of the house was, was under 29 years old, which was, was fantastic. And the, the, the kind of vibrancy that you get, not just vibrancy of age, you know, because they're younger and they don't right. break bones and they laugh. But the kind of dialogue within the audience itself, when you've got a guy like me, who's almost ancient, you know, in an audience with a younger folks, we don't see the world in quite the same way. We don't respond to the same things. We don't ask the same questions. And we don't need the same things out of our art. That creates sort of friction and tension and some excitement in the audience because you're there you're both there. I mean, about half of our shows now, what's fun to do is to go and watch the audience argue with themselves without saying a word. <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw that that shift when I was in New York last year seeing Spring Awakening, mm -hmm. and it's the same thing. Exactly. It's a completely different audience from the normal Broadway show audience. A absolutely. And that audience is you know regard as, as the future in some ways and now there, there are more and more people consciously like and that that that's a great example spring awakening is a great example when we did um bridge and tunnel with uh sarah jones which was another show that people felt was a downtown show they were very nervous about whether it, it could find an uptown audience sure enough it moved uptown it was extremely popular when that happens people's heads shake a little bit and they go well something new is happening it, it, it is possible to in include a new audience not only is it possible it's a really good thing well i wonder uh if it has to do with the fact that um with the advent of big tvs more and more people are seeing serious works in mm -hmm. film at home mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know going out on the dates to right and suddenly they're seeing that you can actually go to the theater and see serious works live and i wonder if maybe Maybe Berkeley rap and and plays like Spring Awakening are picking up on something new in that sense. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a number of factors. But as as a producer just recently told me when I asked him about what's happening on Broadway, you know, what kind of plays work there, he said to me, nobody knows what's happening on Broadway because it's changing so much. Now, part of it is economic because it's no longer viable to run shows off-Broadway economically. It doesn't make any sense to go into a smaller house with the kind of costs that are um, apparent in New York City. So a lot of things are being shoved onto Broadway stages, <laughs> you know, because you might as well take a shot at making some money because spending all this other money. So there's this, you know, a chicken and egg thing going on. There's also the Dodger stages, I don't know yes. what they're called now, where yeah. they're now rotating shows. Yes. The Dodger stages are a very fascinating opportunity. They're, they're like, as you know, they're, they're kind of mid-sized houses. They're like three to 500-seat houses, which probably doesn't have sort of any of. I mean, there's the Helen Hayes, which really is the smallest house now, which is a 600-seat house. That's regarded as the smallest house on Broadway. But the Dodgers have introduced this whole other thing in the same neighborhood where you can do Broadway-ish shows, keeping the costs somewhat down and trying to get a long run in there. 
how does that whole cost problem affect Berkeley Rep, and how does it affect, I I know Aurora's next door to you, how does it affect them? As you undoubtedly know, we're in a capitalist economy, (laughs) 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 and I think that even though we're a nonprofit organization, I think every nonprofit in the world, certainly in this country, has had to go through uh, a complete reexamination of its economic substructure, because there's more and more pressure to actually operate like a commercial organization. There's more and more pressure to find ways to boost earned income, more and more pressure to find ways to offer patrons, even the donors who are giving money to us, want something back. They're purchasing something more and more as opposed to giving something. And so there is a whole new set of uh, ideas and principles and contracts really around this notion of, of you know how to give money how to get money what's the right balance so it's hard to trace a direct line between you know costs in new york and berkeley rep and the aurora but there is a line there i will tell you that and anytime you have overhead you know like you have to run a building and staff suddenly you're you're in the real world people have needs they get older there's health care issues when the health care costs go up, guess what? It affects all of us. So we're certainly very much part of the culture, and we have to pay the price. Do you own your building? Yeah, we do. That's helpful. It's incredibly helpful. It's like, I mean, you guys do too. I mean, I remember when this was built, what a seminally important event that was. I mean, certainly economically, because there's real equity, and you, you have, like, a product. You own something. But there's also a psychological sense of of entitlement and a sense of home. I mean, I'm sure that every, every member of this staff felt uplifted, you know, when this was built. Although it's interesting because it does scare some people, too. I mean, people get freaked out by change. They get freaked out by things are going to not be the same. And some people actually like the sort of community volunteer aspect of, of a lot of a lot of organizations. So when they, they become more bound in some ways or responsible to the strictures of the economy, it, it can be scary for folks. Well, Berkeley Rep still has a very large volunteer base. Right? Yes, but the volunteer base is focused on particular activities. So we have a big gala every year. So a lot of people volunteer for that. Um, we have ushers. We have, I think, the largest community of ushers in the world. <laughs> um, some of the people have been ushering for like 25 years. It's like the greatest gig. And they've been great supporters. But also, you know, as an organization gets more specialized, it becomes harder to try to integrate a volunteer easily because you've got to train somebody, and that takes time, you know, so it, it gets more complicated. You're listening to an interview with Tony Tacconi, who's the artistic director of Berkeley Rep. Let's talk about this play, Wishful Drinking. This play had a different director in L.A., and you took it over. Is that correct? No, it had no director, which is really shocking. I mean, there's, there are very few plays I know that have no director, but basically Carrie drummed up this idea that she wanted to kind of get back in the game as a writer and uh, as a performer. And so she did an incarnation of this piece in L.A. at the Geffen Theater, which Jonathan Reines, who's a uh, producer from here, saw and and enjoyed. But he thought it, it had a life that might go on, and he was looking for a home for it. He approached me about doing a special event at Berkeley Rep around it, which seemed fine. You know, the idea of, of having her up, I mean, I thought, she, I didn't know much about her, except that she was Princess Leia, 
you know, she had sort of been married at some point to Paul Simon. I had seen postcards from the edge, like many people, and, and enjoyed that. I thought it was well done. Uh, but that was really pretty much all I, I, I knew about her. And he said, well, look, do you want to meet her? And at that time, we were talking about a special event at Berkeley Rep with me not attached to it. So he said, okay, I'll go meet her. And she, uh, so I went down to L.A., to Beverly Hills, and I met her at her home. She lives in the house that Betty Davis used to live in, which is an, an amazing place, which Carrie has completely remade after her own taste, which is wild and eccentric and great and weird and fantastic. <laughs> so uh, we met there, and uh, you know, she struck me as being somebody who was obviously really smart and funny. But I said to her, I said, look, having read the script, which I, I fell over laughing when I read the script. I thought this is really funny. But it was a piece of stand-up. You can almost see traces of Absolutely. that in the you final version. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you still can. I said, I said, Carrie, look, if you want to work with us on this, I, I'm interested in making this into more of a of a theater evening. And she said, okay. I said, well, wait, 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 okay. I said, well, what are you, are you willing to talk about some things that you allude to in sort of comic one-liners. I mean, profoundly serious events. I mean, the, her one of her best friends dying in her bed with her next to him and the, her stay in, in a mental hospital, which is a serious and profound event. I said, look, you've got to be willing to talk about these, these kinds of things if we're going to, you know, work on this. And she said, okay. And so the next six months was the process of trying to really get her to really kind of talk about those kinds of things and then to edit them into some kind of shape that felt like it would be part of like a dramatic evening. So that's what we did. So in in a way, you were almost, I don't want to say co-writer, but... Um, but you know you what? Know, you... Jeff Hoyle calls me his midwife, and I think that's probably an appropriate, you know, a, a metaphor. I mean, I basically watched her talk and spew about various things, subjects, ideas, and then a friend of hers named Paul Slansky, who's a, who's a wonderful writer himself, he writes for the New Yorker a lot, is a really good friend of hers, and they kind of put the thing in rough shape. And then I went through it with Carrie and said, you know, what about this? Let's cut this. This is too long. And, and then she was also, she's pretty ruthless about that. I mean, she's really kind of ruthless about her work as a writer. She really doesn't really feel attached to anything, and she knows what works on stage. So you, you shape it. Uh, what kind, do you actually do blocking on a show like that, do you let her to to run run rampant? Well, I mean, Carrie's a little different because one of the biggest problems for her is that she has a really hard time being still. I mean, she'll tell you that she has a really difficult time being still. I mean, she's it's part of what afflicts her. Actually, she can get manic, as she says a lot in the show. So what we've done with her, which is unlike any other show I've ever done, because usually I, I sort of love to block things and get things under a, a, really, a really precise metronomic you know, sensibility. But with Carrie, I've given her parameters. And there are certain sections where she's got to be still and she's got to sit. In fact, on opening night, <laughs> there's this one time in the play. She, she's uncensored. She's just sort of say what's in her head. So she's, she's at this one part of the play and she starts to get up and she says, I've got to sit down. And it was me. It was me in her head, literally in her head saying, don't get up there, Carrie. Don't get up there. <laughs> sit down. Sit back down. But, you know, she'll, she'll get, for my taste, she'll... You know, she chain smokes. She's constantly sipping these Coke Zeros. I mean, because if she isn't doing that, she's pacing the lip of the stage, which which drives both her and me insane. So that's why the constant lighting up and the constant yeah. Yeah. drinking something, it's it's all to keep her Yeah, it's the place. only time I've ever told somebody to smoke on stage. And how much of the show is ad lib and how much is actually scripted? 
Most of it's scripted. It feels ad lib, like any kind of good comedy show. The stuff with the audience is obviously a little bit ad libbed every night. She's got about four or five places every night where she goes into the audience or she drags up a, a volunteer. But the events are still scripted and, and they happen in the same place every night. So there's a spot where the uh, you know the ASM brings out the coke and then she offers the coke to the audience member. There's a spot in the show right at the top where she verifies that her cigarette is a clove cigarette as opposed to a you know, like a regular cigarette, just so that she doesn't violate any sort of primal ordinances of Berkeley. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's also, i tell you what's been interesting is the, the section at the beginning where she describes, you know, she says, she mentions her friend's death. And then she says, does anybody have any questions about that? And that's obviously an ad lib thing. And the, and, the, and the questions, the questions are new every night. But I would say that she's very skilled at segueing back to where she needs to be, and then she'll end it. Because I've said to her, like, look, if this goes on for too long, we can't get back to the show. So she's got a rough sense, I think, about, you know, what, what holds and what's, what's too long. I mean, you know, sometimes she'll err on the side of, of it being long, but she knows. It's been interesting to see what she will respond to every night. But like any comic... And this is, this is a different thing than, let's say, when you're doing Lear. It is fresh every night. There's part of it that's new every night that she needs to have new to feel the vibrancy of it. Tony Tacconi, how do you compare that, say, to uh, a, a play like Taking Over, which is another one-person show but is clearly fully scripted? Fully scripted. Every semicolon, every you know, half utterance, every a uh, man, a uh, man, a uh, man is all scripted. It's very different artists. I mean, um, Danny, we workshopped that play in D.C. and in Minneapolis in the in the in the winter time. We had uh, workshop at once at Berkeley Rep last March. We argued over semicolons versus colons. I mean, so it's a really different process. And Danny also is um he's really an actor. Carrie doesn't even think of herself as an actor. You know, she thinks of herself as a personality who has a story to tell. Danny is doing sort of transformational work, and where each character's got a set of contradictions and and issues and and objectives. So that's much more traditional, you know, working with an actor type work. There's another play that just opened two nights ago, Tragedy, a Tragedy by Will Eno. What's what's the derivation of that show? Will Eno is one of the most imaginative writers that I think we have available to us in, on the American landscape right now. He wrote a play called Tom Paine, which is not about Tom Paine, the revolutionary. It's it's about um, it's really he writes existential comedies what i mean but that's a horrible phrase because it makes people go to sleep but he, he he really writes in the vein of like a beckett where he uses a situation in this case the media there's a news station so on one level on the, the most basic superficial level it uses a newsroom to to expose the kind of inanity of nightly news on television a squirrel runs across the block you know a car backs out of the driveway you know, more at 11. But from that, the newscasters go off on these wild flights of language and inner monologue that are in, 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 the, in the tradition of Faulkner. I mean, it's fantastic. And his sense of language is amazing. And his sense of idea and how ideas are interrelated and what's really going on in the world, what's really going on in our unconscious minds, while we have to say inanities to sort of survive, that's what he's after. And he's really a talented guy. I'm very excited to have him here. Okay, let, let's go back, say, three weeks. At what point, say, three weeks, two or three weeks before the opening, how close is the play ready to be to go on? It depends on the play, you know. Um, uh, some plays find their sea legs really, really quickly. 
Some don't. What happens? Let, let's suppose it's um, it's March fifth, let's say, okay. and, and the play is opening on March nineteenth. Right. By March fifth, what if a show like Tragedy hasn't quite found its sea legs? Do you start to panic? No, that's completely normal. It's it's when when it's March eighteenth. Did it find its sea legs by March fifth? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You can get a pretty good sense. Every rehearsal is like is a process, obviously, and if you've got people who can handle what's happening, who have a sense of intuitive understanding and, and are grappling with the issues. There's a process. You also know as a director, you, you know, we've been doing this a long time. Right. So you also don't want to push people too fast. You don't. You actually want to actually, sometimes we've had the case where people have found the play too early. So sustaining the idea of, of exploration, of what's, what's underneath, what's there that hasn't been plumbed is sometimes short change when that happens. Or you'll have the case where an actor at the first reading is incredible and brilliant and then gets lost. So your whole work is to try to get them back to what their first instinct was because it, it, it can't be that easy, they'll say. That. It can't, I, I couldn't have had it the first reading. These things get complicated pretty fast, but there's also when we add the, you know, the, the technical elements for every show, that's a huge adjustment. And then when, we're the, when, you know, when we add the audience, that's another huge adjustment. I mean, tragedy, tragedy will not be an easy play it'll be fun and incisive but it'll be a play that people have to have to really hear and the actors are going to learn a lot when the audience comes in a play like that does that kind of make it almost unique to berkeley i mean you can't i guess the magic could put on a play like that but but it would be a little bit too scary for a place like act i would think i think you'd have to ask act about that but I, let me just say this there are a number of plays a number of plays that a theater of our size, that it's very, very rare for a theater of our size to be able to do around the United States. I mean, we again, we have an audience that, that can handle it. I mean, I, I don't think we could do, you know, seven Will Eno plays in a season just because, you know, you want to vary the palette. But the Figaro that we're doing after that, which is a, which is a mixture of, uh, of an opera and a play, and the Will Eno piece are going to require different listening skills than Carrie Show. It seems that because you have the smaller the thrust stage, right. it almost it frees your mind. I know I, yeah. I I didn't talk to John Fisher about this over at uh, Rhino, but I suspect the fact that he's got that little basement theater gives him permission. And I'm sure any place with two theaters gives you permission to kind of go off the deep end because the pressure's off. There's no question that you know smaller houses bring a certain sense of liberation from some of the economic. The pressures. Um, in fact, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to build a, a, a 99 seat house. So the third we, house. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, that's what we want to do. So there'll be four houses along that same street. No, we're going to build ours on Center Street. Eventually, that's our long range plan because we want to have a, a like, like a place where there's a lot less pressure. Tony Tacconi, one final question. A lot of people are concerned about prices mm -hmm. of tickets, which is, why, which is why we've lowered our prices. You're still charging. 15, 20, 25 right. bucks, right? Right. Is, is there a way people can get less expensive tickets if they can't afford? Well, if you can't afford anything, you can usher, which is free. There are various programs. I urge everybody to go to our website and find out, you know, the various ways that you can you can get into Berkeley Rep. It's, it's berkeleyrep.org. It's really um, easy to find. And I, I, I think that we've really tried to be sensitive to various situations and look it's in everybody's interest if a lot of people come 
to the theater and if a lot of people from various backgrounds come to the theater. You've been listening to part one of a two-part interview with Tony Tacconi, artistic director of Berkeley Rep. Part two airs on April 4th. Now playing at Berkeley Rep, Tragedy, a Tragedy by Will Eno, which is open till April 13th, and uh, Wishful Drinking with Carrie Fisher, which is <laughs> the, the indomitable, <laughs> yeah, uh, which is uh, which will be playing till April 12th. I'm Richard Walensky for Open Book. This program was produced by Richard Walensky. Other programs. Hosted by Richard can be heard online at www.bookwaves.com. You can contact Richard at bookwaves at hotmail.com or by calling KPFA at 510-848-6767, extension 630. Part two of this interview with Tony Tacconi will be heard on Open Book on Friday, April 4th at 3 p.m. Richard Walensky returns next Thursday on Bookwaves with an interview with author James McBride. Rachel Corey is the young American who was killed by a bulldozer as she blocked the Israeli demolition of a Palestinian family's house. She was 23. From age 7, Rachel wrote down her observations, experiences, and reflections. As she grew older, her writing evolved, revealing her personal passions and deepening concerns for the world, plus a wonderful sense of humor, in prose of amazing immediacy and beauty. Now her journals are being published. KPFA presents a dramatic reading by Rachel's mother and father and many young women peace activists on April 5th, a Saturday, at King Middle School in Berkeley. There's free parking and wheelchair access, and this event benefits the Rachel Corey Foundation and is supported by many peace groups.